Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the word, words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things are mine, are your, that are mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture might, would be fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord be seated. So a few weeks ago, with a, a week in between, we, um, we came to, John, or to uh, Jesus' prayer here in John 17. And I wanted to impress upon you the eternal, ever-existent glory of Jesus Christ, that it precedes us, that it is eternally past. With His Father and the Holy Spirit, He has always had glory. He has always been glorious. Verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world and the universe were created, Jesus had glory along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Last, sun, or last Sunday, we, we, the last time we looked at this passage, we turn to another aspect of this glorious prayer, an aspect, perhaps the primary aspect of Jesus' Glory is the fact that he accomplished his father's work. He accomplished everything his father gave him to do in this world. Notice what Jesus says in verse 5. He has accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus had that to-do list given to him by his father, uh, written down in the decrees of God from all eternity. So Jesus came and did as the father commanded him to do. He was a submissive son that did exactly as the Father asked. Just to back up a moment, I think this passage breaks down into three sections. The first is what we uh, have looked at up to this point, one through five. In that section uh, of Jesus' prayer, he prays that God the Father would glorify him because of the glory he had eternally and the works he had done to glorify the Father. The second section which we begin to look at today, runs uh, from verses 6 through 19. 
In it, Jesus prays for the apostles in particular. He's praying for the apostles, those first preachers of God's word who were then, uh, you know, right there with Jesus. Finally, the last section of the prayer is verses 20 to 26, when Jesus prays for the church broadly, beyond just the apostles, he prays for all of his people. What does that smell? It smells like fertilizer or something, doesn't it? I, I just wondered if it, yeah, kicked on with the, uh, with the air. Anyway, the deacon might want to go down to the mechanical room and see if there's uh, like a turned over bucket of chemicals or something. Um, it's your fault then. <laughs> uh, so 20 through 26 Uh, Jesus prays for the church Catholic, those who would follow the apostles, even for the church today. So three sections. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for the apostles. Jesus prays for the church universal. And um, one commentator says the one great principle that unites and pervades those three different uh, angles is the glory of God in the salvation of men. So we're focused on the glory of God and the salvation of men. So now, this evening, we begin to look at Jesus' prayer for his apostles, those 12 men who were chosen by Jesus to sit at his feet for three years, learning everything that the Father had given the Son to teach them. Actually, those 12 men minus one, right? We have Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. Those men had left everything behind to follow him. They had left behind family and work and friends and comfort. And for these three years, they served Jesus. And then after that, they served Jesus by serving his church. And so they left behind really Jewish respectability. The Jews uh, did not love Jesus. They rejected him. And yet these men didn't reject Jesus. They loved Jesus and went with him. So they left behind Jewish respectability and they left everything to follow Jesus. Uh, John 6, 53 to 69 says this, and you can turn there if you want. John 6, 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now this, these, are hard, these are the hardest words that Jesus would have spoken to any of the Jews. Right? Blood was not, was not favored. Um, we read the Old Testament and, and blood was, uh, you were not to eat the meat of animals with blood in it, right? And the blood was to be poured out. Well, here he's saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's a hard saying. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? 
What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, and I, and I bring this up here because here we are at the end in John 17. Jesus is praying for the apostles just before he's about to depart, go back to the Father. And um, he's to depart, and, uh, but this he says early on in his ministry to them. And so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that's one of those moments in Scripture that we all, uh, we all remember. And it's Peter at his best, right? It's Peter like, no, where, there's no place else to go. If, if we go from you, Jesus, there's nothing else left to turn to. Uh, for our salvation, for eternal life, for for our um, for us to know the glory of God, and so those men who would be called to go out to the ends of the earth and witness to preach that there is salvation in no one other than Jesus Christ, they would go to the ends of the earth. Many of them dying for their witness. They knew though that giving up their lives for Jesus was nothing in light of what He had given to them, which is eternal life. Eternal life. Eternal life. I mean, stop and think about that. Eternal life, but not just eternal life like the life now. Right? An eternal, like I said this morning, an eternal life where we're living with perfect righteousness. Where we don't have days where we regret what our mouth did and what our eyes looked at and what we did and what we did to the ones who were closest to us. And all of that, uh, will not happen. So an eternal life that, that is lived in the paradise of God, as it's put in the book of Revelation. The paradise of God, eternal life. I mean, stop and think about that. You just stop this week sometime and think about the fact that you are destined for eternal life in Jesus Christ, in the paradise of God, freed from sin. It's good. What should wake you up in the morning, right? Forget about all this this battling. I mean, go into battle, but just remember this, that Jesus came to give you eternal life as a gift. But again, there is a cost to discipleship, that cost of following Jesus Christ. Have you given up friends? Have you given up comforts? Have you given up even family because of your faith in Christ? Not because of life circumstances, but because of your faith in Christ, have you lost friends? That's one of the hardest things you can experience is the the loss of very close friends. And it often happens at the point where you want them to know about Jesus, right? You want them not you want the friendship to to progress and uh, for them to know about uh, what is most important to you. And at that point when you share Jesus, um, many of those friends just just take off, just run away, want nothing to do with you. 
and Jesus Christ. And that's very painful. It's one of the costs of, of discipleship. Um, have you departed from what was, you know, once dear to you because, because uh, whether, you know, people who, who won't accept your faithfulness to Jesus, right? They've rejected you. It hasn't come by your witness. It's just become, come by your living. And suddenly they, they don't want the reminder of faithfulness to God. If so, you're doing what all the disciples of Jesus Christ have had to do, beginning with Noah. I mean, think of Noah and his, the cost of discipleship was rejection and mockery by all the people around him. Uh, Abraham, uh, Moses, to the apostles, minus one apostle. And so Jesus prays for these men. Verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They are yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. These 12 men minus one were those whom God the Father gave to the Son out of the world. Right? What an, what an awesome description of these men. Jesus teaches us that these apostles were the men the Father had chosen, had chosen out of the world, had elected from a humanity that was hell-bound. In other words, Jesus is pointing to the glorious truth that God the Father elected these men from all eternity, and the Son of God justified them on that day when he was crucified. Elected from all eternity and justified, made right with God in time. I mean, that's, that's true for all of us. Elected in all in eternity, but justified in time. And remember, this prayer is made before Jesus ha- is about to go to that cross. It lies, justif- the, his work to justify them through the cross lies ahead in the future a bit. And so chosen by the Father before time, given to the Son in time. And so praise God that, in fact is what we read in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, we read about this, this election, right? In that beginning part of Ephesians chapter 1, we read this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And I'll stop there, though we could go on through that whole passage. But there it is. You know, being chosen in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, but then, but then justified through the work of Christ in time. Uh, given to the Son in time. So, yes, there's a sense in which that crucifixion, that death of Jesus, that, that sacrifice of the Lamb of God took place before time. Right? In, in that Ephesians passage we just read, it says God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And the book of Revelation mentions God's elect as those uh, whose names were, have been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life, uh, the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. And so clearly the Father had decreed 
the, the death of the Son of God from all eternity. Just as he had decreed your salvation in him from all eternity. And the decrees of God are not like our promises, which are broken. The decrees of God come to pass. The decrees of God correspond absolutely to reality. If God decrees it, it will, it must come to pass. So to say that God decrees something is to say that God has done that something. It, 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 his, it's not potential, it's actual. Right? But that does not make the actual crucifixion of Jesus superfluous. Right? God decreed his son's death before the foundation of the world, but that decree worked out in the world. Jesus had to fulfill his father's work. He had to do in time that which had been decreed from all eternity. Jesus had to bleed and die. He had to bleed on a Friday afternoon for the sake of those whom the Father had given him. And that is why that moment on the cross is called the fullness of time. The fullness of time, the, the, the redemptive work that was decreed before, it, before creation comes to its head there on the cross and why Scripture refers to it as the fullness of time. All of history points forward and backward to that moment, right? Jesus prays for these men now. Jesus prays for these men. Verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. These 12 minus 1, are, as with any true believer, were chosen by the Father before time, given to the Son in time. And J.C. Ryle says this about that reality. He says, believers are given to Christ by the Father according to an everlasting covenant made and sealed long before they were born and taken out from the world by the calling of the Spirit in due time. They are the Father's peculiar property as well as the property of the Son. They were of the world and no wise better than others. Their calling and election out of the world to be Christ's people and not any foreseen merit of their own is the real secret foundation of their character. Right Now, so many people, so many Christians, perhaps you hate the thought of being the Father's property. That's the word that, that Ryle used there. You are the Father's property, the Son's property. Because, you know, many people want to leave room for a, an independent will from the Father. For will that, that freely, without the influence of God, chooses the Son and thereby qualifies them for the Father's love. But there is no language like this, that in this prayer. It's not how Jesus speaks. Now, Jesus calls the disciples, the men you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me. Right? There's nowhere where they're their own thing or their own property. It's either they were the fathers and then the sons, or the fathers and the sons, or nothing else, right? And so later, verse 9, Jesus prays, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. That's all the language of possession, right? God the Father possessed all those people as a possession. 
It's not potential possession. It's actual possession. Jesus is praying for those whom the Father had and gave to him. So now, why push what some consider just, you know, an old, the, 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 uh, the old divisive Calvinistic doctrine of election? Well, here's what Scripture says. When you understand that God is sovereign in salvation, all boasting is thrown out. Right? All boasting is thrown out. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one can boast. Can anybody boast and say, ha ha, I made myself the Father's. I, I put God the Father in debt to me. I made the Father claim me. Because of, because of an excellent choice I made, because of a, a certain number of works I did, because of my lineage, because I'm educated, because I'm six feet tall, because I'm French-Canadian. Not that one. Sorry. Um, my, that's my heritage. You know, it throws out all boasting. If God possessed us and gave us to the Son, there was no time when we were our own thing. No time when we were independent of God and had an autonomous will that could somehow select Him, right? And that's foolish because we're all dead in our sins and do not do any spiritual good outside of Jesus Christ. What is it to boast other than to take credit for something? Right? That's, that's what we do when we boast. You know, what is, what is um, you know, you, on the basketball court, you slam the ball through the net on somebody's face and you get boasting. And what are you boasting? You boast in the action you just, you just did. How you dominated somebody, right? <clears throat> what is it to take credit for something other than to be prideful? Right? It's prideful to take credit. And yet here, <clears throat> if you're not, if you dispense with the doctrine of election, you're not just taking credit for a slam dunk. I mean, you're taking credit for your eternal salvation. That's wicked. That's wickedness. That is the pride of prides. Right? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the doctrine of election does the most humbling of any other doctrine in all of Scripture. And, all, and it's infused through this final prayer of Jesus, right? Those that you gave to me. It's all over this prayer. <clears throat> God is opposed to the proud. Those who would want to claim that they gave themselves to God rather than God uh, the Father giving them to the Son. God is opposed to the proud. We don't we have a hard time believing that. We take credit for our salvation. We have done the believing, after all. We take credit for building up of merit. We have done the praying. We have done the works, after all. But no, God opposes the proud. God opposes those who can look into the pages of Scripture, read of His beautiful and majestic and eternal and indefatigable sovereignty, those who can look into Scripture and read of His Son, praying to Him about those who are His, and then claim they have done something to obligate Him to save them. God opposes such boasting. A knowledge of our salvation is supposed to punch all boasting in the face. Right? 
It's supposed to end it. Knock it out. A true knowledge of the absolute sovereign grace of God in our salvation should have us crying out in thanksgiving all the time. Why did God choose you? Because he chose you. Not because you went to Clemson. Right? Certainly not, right? Don't get into football. Don't do it. Um, A true knowledge of the absolute sovereign grace of God in our salvation should have us crying out in thanksgiving. Why me? Why me? Why me, Father? Sovereign grace. His sovereign grace. Why me? I was his and was given by him to the Son. And he died for me. So, dear brothers and sisters, uh, this, this, should, uh, this should encourage you. This should uh, fill your minds <clears throat> with uh, joy. Our boasting, uh, but our boasting can, be, can, can perhaps be even more blasphemous. We don't, um, you know, I, 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 think of, uh, I think of our work down at the abortuary. Right, and it's it's not fun work. I mean, we can't get anybody in the church to come down there. That's that's how unfun it is. Right, it's it's me and Michael and usually a few others, and it, it's it's intense. It's hard. It's early in the morning. It's a Saturday. No one wants to give up their Saturdays. Um, and uh, and yet we go out there, and it's not even the stuff about abortion. You know that that bothers me, and I can pray about that. But what's really distracting is is um, a group of people down there who hang signs around their necks, who click through their rosaries, right? Who who go through the mantra of prayers of the Hail Marys that they're saying, um, and they're there to build merit. They're there so that they can, at the end of their days, say to God, God, you owe me. I've done this and this and this. I've done 10,000 10, Hail Marys. I've, done, I've clicked through my rosary 78,564 times. And, and what they're, they're, they're boasting, right? They, they're they're going to go to God and say, yeah, I mean, John 17, sure, you possessed us and, and all that, but look what I did. Look what I did. Um, we don't go out to the abortuary as merit builder. We don't do anything like that. In fact, um, but we can presume upon God's grace on the other side of things and reject works and treat God as if the salvation of our souls cost him very little, right? We err on the other side. We think, okay, if it isn't by works, then we don't need to work, right? And that's not where Scripture comes down either. Faith works, right? We are saved by faith, but not without works, okay? And so we, um, we can go down there and we can, uh, um, we can boast in an opposite way and we can, um, we can think... You know, we can, we can just presume upon the grace of God that it's easy and forget of the cost of 
the Son of God. Think of this prayer before Jesus is arrested and dies. He's pouring his heart out to his Father. He's crying out that, that we would be kept, that the apostles would be kept as they go out into the world to preach uh, the word. And so, um, read Jesus' prayer. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And we can sometimes think, forgetting the cost, that um, we, it is deservedly so that we receive those things. And there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no works. There's no position. There's no upbringing. There's nothing that allows us to take credit for what God did in those moments. So we can go along like this. We could see no problem praising Jesus on Sunday and living like a worldling outside the walls of the church. We see no incongruity between our consistent complaining and God's sovereign salvation, right? We can be complainers our whole life and then praise God for his, his sovereign care, right? We see no incongruity between killing our baby and worshiping God as, as you know, you often hear people, I, the abortuaries on my mind, but you often hear people down there saying, yeah, I can do this and God will, God will forgive me, right? God will love me. Um, we see no problem with, with, um, with impure thoughts and proclaiming ourselves a child of God. We see no reason to fear God, no reason to repent, no reason, in fact, to pursue any good works, relax, just chill, take, uh, just coast. I've got me some Jesus, and I'm all good, right? So we, can, we have the merit builders on one side who, who despise election, and then we have the, the cheap gracers on the other side who, who won't get to work, who won't respond to the grace of God by, by mortifying the flesh, by mortifying the desires, by doing good works, by being a good father, by, by um, worshiping God with his people. You know? And so uh, both of those sides of this equation are, are wrong. There's a, there's a boastfulness in both sides. And I think, I think evangelicals, not, not Catholics, but evangelicals tend toward the cheap grace side of things, right? Our boast, unlike Paul's boast, is not in the cross of Jesus Christ, but in the crossless concept of grace. Grace, 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 grace. God will forgive me. But that's not, but it's a crossless concept of grace, right? It's a cheap concept of grace. We believe that we possess God rather than being God's possession, right? We believe we possess God rather than being God's possession. I have found the Lord. I have found God. I have me some Jesus, right? Rather than it being God has taken possession of me, God has given, God owns me and gave me to the Son. It's a very different thing. And so our thanksgiving, our awe in the face of the magnitude of the death of the Son of God for our salvation um, can be shallow. It can be non-existent. We never sit back in awe of the God who saved us by his sovereign choice because we are too busy taking credit for the nothings that we do. The cheapness, the easiness, the, the, the easy belief. We're extremely delusional. And so... We need to let this truth set in. You are God's possession. I mean, think about that. You are God's possession. A choice possession, right? But God's possession. 
You don't possess God. God possesses you. Right? That's why, um, that's why obedience is a response to that glorious grace that he has given to us. Right? You are God's possession. He owns you and you are but his slave. Right? He has given you everything you ever had, including your salvation, the salvation of your soul. If that thrills you, if that boggles your mind, if it, if it convicts you, if it strengthens your resolve to love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then you know the Lord and the preciousness of his sovereign choice, right? That precious sovereign choice. God chose you. God chose you. And God gives you an inheritance. And God will provide for you. And God has never once left you alone on your own to figure out things away from him. If he possesses you, then there is nothing that can dispossess you from him. Right? And it's just the, the gloriousness of the, this prayer. It's, it's what stood out to me in this prayer that in, in the final prayer for his people in John 17 that Jesus keeps saying, you gave me them. And the Father gave us to the Son, right? And yes, it's speaking of the apostles, but it goes on beyond that and speaks of, of all of us. But um, that's, that's what I wanted to set our minds on this evening. And hopefully when you wake up tomorrow morning, you'll be thinking, okay, I'm God's possession. What does that mean for me? I'm God's possession. What does that mean? Is that, does that affect what I think and say and what thanksgivings I give and what I do and, what, and how I do my schoolwork and the attitude that I have with my parents and the attitude I have at work and the, the witness that I give everywhere? Yes, it does. It should. We are the possession of God and Jesus has redeemed us in time and we have a glorious inheritance awaiting us. And so, don't be so hangdog. That's what I say to Thomas all the time when he's just like. But that we cannot be that way. This, this glorious prayer was made for us and it confirms the sovereign God in our election. And we should, we should, we should rest in that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your Son, Jesus. We thank you for this prayer that we were able to, we are able to look into the, uh, the mind of the Godhead, so to speak, and, uh, and, and know how the Son communicated to the Father. And we thank you for this, this reminder of your sovereign grace your electing grace. We thank you for, for giving us to your Son, Lord, and for us receiving redemption in him. Lord, we thank you that in our place he died on the cross and he removed that certificate of, of debts that we might uh, come into your presence with, uh, with joy and know your glory forever. Father, I pray that you would help us to be mindful of these things, that our obedience would be motivated out of thankfulness and love towards you and, and your Son and all 
that you have done to us. Just the fact, Father, that you have been mindful of us boggles the mind, but you have been you have been sacrificially loving us and you have always known us and we rest in that father we pray this in Jesus name amen